0: Welcome to Strong Meat for Strong Believers, I'm Pastor Doug Johnson. I want to invite you to join me as we look at the issues facing us today and what God's Word says about them. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14 says, Milk is for babies, but strong meat is for grown-ups who can discern the difference between good and evil. At the end of the broadcast, I'll tell you how you can get a copy of this message for yourself. And now, grab your Bible and get ready for another helping of Strong Meat for Strong Believers.
1: You know, the Bible has predicted future events accurately hundreds of times, and so many people rely on what it says. Even false teachers and false preachers with end-time predictions try to take verses out of context to legitimize their claims, but they've been wrong because they weren't based on the whole Bible. You cannot just take verses, a verse out of context and, you know, make it mean what you wanted to say. That's not rightly dividing the word of truth. And when studying Bible prophecy, some people debate over whether to take it literally or figuratively. And to be honest with you, sometimes it's hard to know. You know, only God really knows. But I'll give you an example. You know, the Bible prophesied uh, for many years that Israel would be scattered around the world and then come back to their homeland. And for many years, Bible scholars argued over whether that was literal or figurative. Well, in 1948, everybody found out because Israel became a nation and the Jews have been returning back to their homeland ever since. So it was a literal prophecy. But again, sometimes it's hard to know until something gets fulfilled to kind of point in that direction. Now, as we learn in this study, uh, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation have already happened in our time frame. But in John's time frame, when Jesus gave this to him, it was present day for him. And uh, in the first couple chapters, Jesus appears to John on the island of Patmos and gave him some special instructions for seven churches and their pastors. Now, when John wrote this book, John wanted the book read in one setting and preferably allowed in the churches. And that's how he wrote the book of Revelation. So, of course, we're taking our time and going you know, chapter by chapter through it. But the way he wrote it, Uh, And the way he wanted delivered was he wanted to be read in the church aloud from chapter 1 through chapter 22, read it all together. And uh, so that's interesting. But in each letter, Jesus revealed himself in a specific way to each of these seven churches. We've covered the first four already, but let me recap real quickly for those who uh, may have missed that. The first church that he sent a letter to was the church of Ephesus. And Ephesus had lost their first love. He revealed himself to them as the one who holds the pastors in his hand and walks among the churches. Basically, what he was saying is, I know your hearts, and I know that your heart is left me because you've left your first love. The second letter to the second church was the church of Smyrna. Smyrna was the persecuted church. They were living in affliction and poverty. In that letter, Jesus revealed himself as the first and the last which was dead and is alive. And he promised to help them overcome their persecution. The third letter was to the church of Pergamos. Pergamos was the compromised church. Jesus revealed himself as the one which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And that was a warning of what would happen if they continued to compromise their beliefs. The fourth letter was to the church of Thyatira. Thyatira was the false teaching church. Jesus revealed himself as he who has his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. In other words, he said, I am the one who sees straight to the heart and judges the true intentions of men and women. And so he could judge Thyatira and knew that they were teaching false teaching there and he was going to judge them if they didn't stop, if they didn't repent. So that was covered in chapter 2 of Revelation. In uh, chapter 3 is where we're going to start tonight. And we're going to read the last three letters that Jesus sent to the last three churches. So here we are in Revelation 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 to start off with. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works that thou hast a name that thou livest and are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So Jesus' fifth letter is to the dead church of Sardis. Now Sardis is said to have been the chief city of Asia Minor, and the first city In that part of the world that was converted by the preaching of John. And Jesus reveals himself to them as he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, as we learned last time, the stars represent the pastors of those churches. Now, the seven spirits of god there's I, I kinda, you know that kind of threw me off a little bit because I always you know I always thought, well, I know about the Holy Spirit where are the what are these other six? Where are these seven spirits of God? So I started doing a little research on them, and some Bible scholars say. This refers to seven angels who are before God's throne. But what I found that most people agree with is that when it says the seven spirits of God, most believe that this actually does represent the Holy Spirit with his various powers, graces, and operations. For though the Holy Spirit is personally one, though it is here said to be seven. Now, you know, the the number seven means fullness or perfection. And, of course, that is the same number of churches here and the same number of pastors here. And they say that this is said to show that every minister in every church there is given a dispensation and measure of the Spirit for them to profit with all. Because it is the Holy Spirit who makes churches alive. And so those seven spirits that he's talking about there, uh, they say that it represents a dispensation of the Spirit that was given to each of those seven churches. Now... With the church of Sardis, if it was one of the first churches that was converted by the preaching of John and it had a good reputation, is what Jesus said, what we read in Revelation 3 with a great start and a good reputation, you would think that Sardis would be full of life. However, something happened and somehow the church fell asleep because Jesus said, You have a good reputation that you have, that you're alive, but you're dead. You know, in in the other letters, Christ begins with commending what is good in the church and then proceeds to tell them what is wrong. But in this letter, as well as the letter to Laodicea we'll read later on, he begins with a rebuke, and it is a very serious one to Sardis. He says, I know your works, that you have a name that thou livest, but you are dead. In other words, they had a form of godliness, but no spiritual power nor life in them. Now Jesus tells them to be watchful because the cause of their deadness was that they had let down their guard. They had stopped keeping watch from the enemy. Therefore, they must return to their watchfulness against sin and against Satan and whatever is destructive to the life and power of godliness. He says, keep watch. Then he tells them to strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. He says that there are things in you that remain but they are getting ready to die and you need to start strengthening these things again because or else you're going to lose it all. In other words, take heed to what you've received and what you've heard. Take heed to the messages you've received from God. Take heed to the tokens of his mercy and favor that has been toward you. And he says, or else I will come to you as a thief and you will not know the hour. He's telling them you need to start strengthening the things that are weak before they die. Because when those things die, you'll be completely dead. And I will come to you as a thief to strip them of what remaining pleasures and mercies they had. Not by fraud like an earthly thief, but he would come in justice and in righteousness. You know, Jesus disciplines those he loves. uh, He judges those that have sinned. And to even to the dead church... He is sending this message to them because he loves the church of Sardis so much he is warning them ahead of time. He says, wake up before it's too late. Be watchful and it's time to finish what you started. You know, that's the great thing about our God. He sends warnings ahead of time before judgment comes because he loves us and he wants to give us an opportunity to repent. Let me ask you something. Have you ever started on something with heart and passion and direction, and then somewhere along the way you lost the passion and forgot why you started it? Well, that happens to churches too, not just individuals. And that's what had happened to this church of Sardis. You know, some churches can look alive on the outside, but inside they're dead. And that's what the church of Sardis was like. And so to churches like that, Jesus says, wake up and stand guard, be watchful again. Take your guard, take your your rightful place on guard, and be watchful again. Now, those who have the historical view of Revelation, I mentioned to you last time that there are some who view the book of Revelation as historical, and they say the things of, of Revelation have already taken place. Now, those who have a historical view of Revelation say that this letter to Sardis also represented the Protestant church. From 1500 to 1700s, that was when Martin Luther and others began to protest the excesses in the church. And that's when they returned to the Bible and it changed history here on earth. And so they say this letter to Sardis also refers to that. But I want to say to you this. I believe the letter to Sardis also can refer to things happening today, because even today, there are people who are just who are who are pretending to be a Christian, they're pretending to be alive, but really inside they're dead. You know, the Pharisees who came against Jesus were just like that. Jesus told the Pharisees, He said, You're like whited sepulchres on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. You see, even so there are people who actually Act like the church of Sardis, even today. Now, Jesus does mention the faithful remnant in Sardis. He says, Thou hast a few names in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. And he makes a very gracious promise to them. He says, They shall walk with me in white. For they are worthy. So the whole church of Sardis was not, had, was not dead. There were some faithful believers there who were still alive and still in love with Jesus. And I want to tell you tonight, just as God will spare a city for the righteous that are there, God will spare a church for the few believers that are still alive there. And I say thank God for believers who will come to church on a Sunday night and who are still in love with Jesus. Can I have an amen? Hallelujah. But we need to keep watch for our souls and we need to be willing to stay alive and strengthen those things that are remain. Because James chapter 1 verse 27 says this, pure religion and undefiled before God of the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. What does that mean? It's the same thing Jesus telling the church of Sardis. Keep watch Keep yourself unspotted from the world. Stay alive spiritually. And he, of course, at the end of every letter, there was also a reward that Jesus gave them. And the reward for Sardis, he said, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, And I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Brothers and sisters, if you will stay spiritually alive, if you will stand your guard against the devil and against the temptation of this life, Jesus has your name in the Lamb's book of life. And when this life on earth is over, Jesus will produce his book of life and he will confess the names of the faithful who stand before God and in front of all the angels. And he will do this as their captain and their head, leading them triumphantly and presenting them before God the Father. Hallelujah. I want to be in that book. How many want to be in that book today? Keep watch over your soul. Don't die, but stay spiritually alive. Hallelujah. And so tonight, if you're losing your spiritual fire, if you're losing your spiritual life, Jesus says, wake up and stand guard. Because it's time to finish what you started. Hallelujah. The sixth letter is to the church of Philadelphia. It starts in verse 7. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man opens. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. And no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Verse 9. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Now, this sixth of seven letters from Jesus is the church in Philadelphia. And of course, we know the word Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. That's what the word Philadelphia means. And so to this church, of faithfulness and brotherly love, Jesus opens a door for the gospel that no one can shut. This church had an excellent spirit, and there was not one fault found with this church. Jesus reveals himself as he that is holy, true, hath the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. Now, by the way, he is quoting there from Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. What he quoted back then and through Isaiah, that he had the key of David as talking about the authority that he has. And my friend, I want to tell you tonight that when God opens a door for you, it doesn't matter who likes it or who doesn't, you walk through that door and you enjoy the blessings of favor of God because God opens a door that no man can shut. And when God shuts a door, no man can open. How many are glad for that? And if God is for you, who can be against you? And so he tells them, Thou hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. Jesus commends them for keeping his word and not being ashamed of him. Jesus told Sardis to wake up. Well, Philadelphia woke up and they held on to Jesus' word. That's what every church is supposed to be doing, holding on to God's word. And not just that, but spreading his word. I want you to take for a moment and just uh, take a moment and imagine... All the things that the Christian church has accomplished in the world by spreading the gospel. If you erase all Christian churches, you know, we wouldn't be sitting here tonight. But if you erase all Christian churches, you can erase a lot of hospitals across this world. Because you can trace medical care and some of the earliest hospitals to the Christian community. You could also erase a lot of colleges like Harvard and Yale and Princeton. These schools all began as Christian institutions to teach people the Bible. You could also erase a lot of orphanages and homeless shelters and feeding centers that have been started in the name of Christ, in the name of the gospel. In fact, if you erase Christianity, you would also erase the United States as we know it. Historians say that without Jesus, this nation would look a lot like 20th century China. But in 1620, before the pilgrims landed, they sat on their ship, the Mayflower, and wrote the birth certificate of America called the Mayflower Compact. It's one of many documents that gives the stated purpose for establishing this nation. And I quote, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, end quote. My friend, as bad as this world is right now, it would be much worse if the church stopped spreading the gospel. Thank God for churches and Christians that are still spreading the gospel. Now those who take the historical view of Revelation, they say... This letter to Philadelphia and that open door that Jesus is talking about that he opens represents the great awakening and the missions movement of the 18th and 19th centuries back when preachers like Edwards and Whitfield woke the church up and missionaries like William Carey and Hudson Taylor and many more went out preaching the gospel. Uh, Maybe that's it, maybe not, but I also believe that we in the 21st century can learn a lesson from the letter of the Church of Philadelphia. Because you see, the problem that they were facing was they were being lied to by some unsaved Jews who opposed the Christians. But Jesus said these folks were actually of the synagogue of Satan. These were evil, evil people that had crept into the church of Philadelphia. And apparently it had been quite a trial because Jesus said, Thou hast a little strength left. That means there were a few faithful believers in the church that were holding on to Jesus and his word. But Jesus was going to turn the tables on their enemies. He said, They will worship at your feet. Now that does not mean that they were going to pay divine honor to the church itself but they were going to be so convicted that they had been in the wrong and the church was in the right and is beloved of Christ that these people that were of the synagogue of Satan were going to come and desire to be taken in communion with them and they were going to repent and they were going to fall down and worship God. Hallelujah. Let me ask you a question. When people see your church, do they desire to become a part of it and worship your God or do they run the other way? Because we need to be like the church of Philadelphia. We need to be the kind of church that holds on to Jesus' words. And be the faithful few that hold on to his word. And those who come against us, God will make them fall down and worship him with us at our feet. Hallelujah. Because they'll come and realize we're serving the true God. And that church is a church that I want to join myself to and be a part of. Can I have an amen at Raven Assembly of God? oh hallelujah Jesus promised them because you have kept the word of my patience I also will keep you from the hour of temptation now remember when John wrote this he wanted this book to be read cover to cover all the way through and that hour of temptation means the tribulation period and Jesus said because you kept the word of my patience I I will keep you from the hour of temptation. Hallelujah. My friend, when you follow God's word, when you live for the Lord, he will keep you from the hour of temptation that is coming. Hallelujah. And then he says to them, hold that fast which thou hast. Hold fast what you have. Well, what did they have? Well, he actually listed that earlier in the chapter. He said, you have a little strength. You have kept my word. You have not denied my name. Those are things that they had. And he said, I want you to hold fast to it. And Jesus said, I am coming quickly to rescue them and reward them. He said, hold fast what you have and don't let any man take your crown. Now listen, your crown is your reward. The Bible tells us that when we stand before God, all of our works are going to be tried in the fire of God, the judgment seat of Christ. and We'll get into that a little more in detail later on. But all of our life's work will be thrown in the fire of God. And whatever is left from the fire, whatever is left from our life's work will be crowned, will be fashioned to a crown and given to us as our life's reward. You see, a crown is your reward. You can lose your reward. You can lose your reward. You can lose the things that you have done for the Lord. That's what he's telling the church of Philadelphia. Hold fast what you have. Don't deny my name. Don't let go of my word. Hold fast to it. lest somebody take your crown. Now, he's not meaning they won't be saved because, you see, friend, a crown is your reward. You can lose your reward if you're not careful. You see, and then he says, here's the reward for those that overcome he that overcomes shall be a monumental pillar in the temple of God. Now he's not talking about a pillar to support the temple. Heaven doesn't need those props. <laughs> Heaven is not propped up by a bunch of pillars. But what he's talking about is a monument of the powerful a powerful grace of God as many stately pillars have been erected in honor to honor the Roman emperors and generals have been made in this earth. On this pillar, he says, there will be an inscription. In other words, there'll be a pillar. If you overcome, if you hold fast to Jesus, there'll be a pillar made in your honor of the grace of God. And there'll be an inscription on this pillar in your honor and notice what Jesus says there'll be three inscriptions number one the name of God will be on that inscription number two the name of the new city the new Jerusalem will be on that inscription and the third thing Jesus said in verse 12 I will write upon them my new name Now, I don't know what his new name is, but my friend, when you get to heaven, if you hold fast to his word and you hold, do not deny him. Don't you be ashamed of him. You stand firm for him. There'll be a pillar, a monument made with you. Hallelujah. In your honor for the grace of God. And it'll be as a testimony of who you belong to and what city you reside in. The new Jerusalem. Hallelujah. What a reward for holding on to God. And so I say to you tonight, if you're struggling with people coming against you, like the people of Philadelphia was, you hold on to Jesus and his word no matter what because great will be your reward. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And then the final, the seventh letter is written to the church of Laodicea, beginning with verse 14. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write... These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing... And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. And white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. The church of Laodicea is the apathetic church. This is once a famous city near the river Lycus. It had a wall of vast range, three marble theaters, and like Rome, it was built on seven hills. It is the last of the seven letters, and those of a historical view of Revelation believe that this letter also represents the church in modern times. You see, in Laodicea, Jesus said he knocks on the door. He's working to try to stir up some fire in these lukewarm hearts. Because being lukewarm is not a new problem. Half-hearted, lukewarm Christianity fills church pews around the world even today. How does it happen? And what does Jesus think about it? Well, notice that Jesus reveals himself to them as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. What does that mean? He is saying, what I say is true and will come to pass. Amen. That's what he's saying. What I'm telling you Is true and it is going to come to pass. And he says to them in verse 15 and 16, I know thy works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Jesus says, what I'm saying to you is going to happen unless you open the door and let me in and sup with me and I will come in. So how does a person become lukewarm? Well, they start off hot and then moderately cool down one degree at a time until they match their surroundings. Lukewarm Christianity is one sin that makes God sick at his stomach. He says, I will spew you out of my mouth. Now I want you to notice, Jesus was not speaking to agnostics or atheists. He was not speaking to prostitutes and drug pushers. He was not speaking to alcoholics. He was talking to ho-hum, lukewarm Christian church members. It's who he's talking to here. People who have the attitude, Jesus, I believe in you, but you just don't excite me anymore. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but I've got better things to do with my time. Let me tell you something, church. Even the devil believes Jesus is the Son of God, but he ain't going to heaven. You can say you believe Jesus Son of God. You can say you believe he died on the cross. You can say you believe he was born of a virgin, laid in a a stable. He was laid in a borrowed tomb. You can say you believe that, but is he your Lord? If he's not your Lord, you're lukewarm. You see, the church of Laodicea didn't know how far away they were from God because they couldn't see clearly. Verse 17, Jesus said, You say I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but you don't know that you're wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. Now, Laodicea was a banking center and had a famous medical school. They thought they didn't need anything. They thought that they, were, uh, they had everything they needed. Well, that sounds like America today, don't it? And, then, and, and, and what struck me here in this is how blind do you have to be to not know you're naked? I mean, think about that. I can be blind and know I'm naked. I, I can know that I'm not wearing any clothes even when I'm blind. But Jesus said these people are so blind, you don't even know how poor you are. You don't know how wretched you are. And you don't even know that you're naked. These people were so blind spiritually. Listen to me. There is a movement in the church today to focus on worldly wealth. Let me tell you something. Jesus has the true riches. Jesus has the true white raiment you can wear. Jesus has the true eye salve that will open your eyes and let you see the truth. You know, many people are hindered from being truly saved today by a false conceit that they already are. You know, there are people that think they are saved because they're American. There are people, I have met people like that. People think because they were born in America that they are saved. Gee, the the devil is lying to people. He's got people so deceived, they don't even see how wretched and how poor spiritually they are. Jesus said in John chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. Again, Jesus is talking to blind spiritual leaders here who think they're saved, who think they're in right relationship with God. And Jesus said, If you were truly blind, you'd be all right. But the fact that you say you see when you really don't, then your sin is going to stay on you. Because you're refusing to open your eyes. You see, What there's an old saying that says, He who provides for this life but takes no care for eternity is wise for a moment but a fool forever. My friend, more important than trying to find out what your stock portfolio is right now, you need to find out if you're laying up treasure in heaven for the hereafter. You need to find out, am I truly saved or am I getting lukewarm in my relationship with Christ? Because every stimulus that you allow in your life will either heat or cool your love for Jesus. It'll either heat it up or it'll cool it down. Including what you do in the mornings, what you do when you're driving, what you do on the job, what you do when you're on break, your TV habits, your internet use, how you unwind. Everything you do will either heat your love for Jesus or it'll cool it down. And Jesus said, we read it, that he would rather you be a bad, cold-hearted sinner or an on-fire, hot Christian than to be lukewarm. Because here's the reason he said that. Because when you meet somebody who is a cold-hearted, bad, wicked sinner and they know it, you can reach somebody like that. And you you have somebody that's a hot, on-fire for Christian, God can use somebody like that. But when you have somebody who's lukewarm, they think they're saved, but they're not. They think they're rich, but they're poor. They think they're clothed, but they're really naked. You can't reach somebody like that. You know why? Because they think they're saved now. They think they're okay now. Try to witness somebody like that. Has anybody ever tried to witness somebody who already thought they were ready to go to heaven and they were saved and yet you knew they weren't? It is hard to reach somebody like that. They're lukewarm. Jesus said, I would rather you know Which side of the fence you're on? Honey, that's what he's saying. Leave no confusion in anybody's mind which side of the fence you're on. Are you a sinner or are you an on-fire Christian? Don't straddle the fence because the devil owns the fence. Hallelujah. You don't want to straddle the fence. And that's what being lukewarm does. You see, being lukewarm will affect us in five different ways. The first way that being lukewarm will affect us, being lukewarm will affect Our salvation. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Lost people reject Christ. Saved people neglect Christ. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Neglecting is worse than rejecting. Because those who know Christ should know better. That's why what the Pharisees were doing to Jesus, that's why they got rebuked the way they did, because they were lukewarm. They thought they were righteous when they really weren't. You see, neglecting salvation is worse than rejecting it. And the right of Hebrews says, how shall we escape? Let me answer that for you. We won't. My friends, we've got to give Jesus 100%. Don't neglect the salvation. Receive it. Don't get lukewarm. Don't just cool down one degree at a time. Stay hot. Stay on fire. Stay full of the Holy Ghost because Jesus is coming soon. And when he comes back, he's coming for a bride who's looking for him. I wish you had an amen tonight. Oh, hallelujah. The second thing that lukewarm will affect, being lukewarm will affect your sanctification. Oh, yes. Yes. You see a lukewarm person doesn't try to live a holy life. They cut down the middle. They compromise. They try to be a people pleaser. And so a lukewarm person doesn't want to work. Doesn't live a holy life. Dr. Stephen Olford, the mentor to Dr. Billy Graham, used to pray this way, "Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be." That was his prayer. "Lord, make me as holy" As a saved sinner can be. Let me tell you something. We're not perfect. And we may say and do some things that we shouldn't. And and, and that's why sanctification is a process. But my friends, can I ask you this? Can you say that you are striving to live a holy life? Do you instantly confess your sin when you give it a temptation? Or do you try to cover it up? Because a lukewarm person, they won't confess. They cover it up. They make excuses for their actions. And that's why being lukewarm will affect your sanctification. The third thing being lukewarm does, being lukewarm will affect your supplications. Your supplications. Statistics tell us that the average Christian spends less than 10 minutes a day in prayer. Think about that. Less than 10 minutes a day in prayer. My friends, the first person we're going to see when we die is the Lord. So the first person we should talk to in the mornings is the Lord. Many people are concerned about prayer being in schools. I say, let's get prayer back in our homes. Let's get prayer back in our churches. Then prayer will come back in the schools. Hallelujah. I wish I had a witness in here tonight. We need to pray because being lukewarm will affect your prayer life. Let me tell you something. The issue is not that we don't have enough time. The issue is we don't have a disciplined spiritual life. That's the problem right there. Let me ask you something. Have you ever read the Bible all the way through? Do you realize if you just spend 15 minutes a day reading the Bible, you'll read it through in a year? Fifteen? Can you give God 15 minutes of your day? Sure you can. Can you spend a little more time than 10 minutes a day in prayer talking to your Heavenly Father? Sure you can. Don't be lukewarm, church, because lukewarm affects our supplication. The fourth thing being lukewarm does, it affects our soul winning. Statistics tell us that the average Christian in America will live and die without ever winning one person to Christ. I'm not talking about atheists, agnostics. I'm not talking about these heathens out here. I'm talking about Christian people who say they love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They'll live and die without winning one person to Christ. Brothers and sisters, lukewarm people get wrapped up in materialism and forget that one soul is worth more than all the wealth of the world. Brothers and sisters, what will it, what will it profit you if you gain the whole world yet didn't tell one person about Jesus? What really did you accomplish in this life? You see, we as American Christians can be so self-centered we've got to we've got to stand guard against this you know unsaved people look at christians and if all they see is bitterness and anger resentment gossip and criticism well they got plenty of that already i don't want a lost person to look at me and say that i'm their excuse for remaining a sinner do you do you want them to say that about you my friend let's don't be lukewarm let's stay on fire for god and the fifth and last thing that being lukewarm will do, being lukewarm affects our sacrifice. You know, most of us don't know what real sacrifice is for the Lord. The offerings and the ties we give seldom affects our lifestyle. But over 5 million churches are in the world today, and most people don't ride a car to church. In fact, over 1 billion people will worship God this week, and most of them will walk to church. Can I tell you something? We're blessed. I said, we are blessed. How dare we complain? Why is it that other countries, believers in other countries, have less and do more for God and we have more and we do less for God? That makes no sense to me. I'll tell you why. Because we're getting comfortable. We're taking our ease in Zion. We're becoming lukewarm. There are people who will complain when the elevator is not working. And they got to take the stairs. There are people who complain because somebody takes their seat at church or when the preacher's long-winded. Let me tell you something. Jesus commanded us to take up our cross, not wear one. If you're wearing a cross, bless you. Bless you. But you know what? That's not what he meant. You can wear a cross, but you got to deny yourself. Take up your spiritual cross and follow Jesus. Live the life. Don't become lukewarm. Because a lukewarm person doesn't take spiritual matters seriously. One Bible scholar said that Laodicea, the word Laodicea means ruled by the people, kind of like a democracy. And what we're seeing in a lot of churches today, we're seeing people come across like this. Well, the church voted and we don't preach about sin anymore. Well, the church voted and homosexuality is okay now. The church voted and Jesus isn't the only way to heaven now. We're seeing that a lot in the American church today. But look at what Jesus says in verse 19. Verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You see, my friends, our comfort in afflictions is knowing that it is a divine correction from the Lord. It is the chastening of the Lord. And when the Lord chastens us, when he warns us, it's because he loves us. It's not because he's being mean to us. We can be sure that a holy God will do us no wrong And a God of infinite goodness means us no harm. It is a fatherly correction. It comes not from his vindictive justice as a judge, but as a wise affection as a father. And here's the reward that Jesus said in verse 21. To him that overcomes... Will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Hallelujah. There's another promise right there of how believers will rule and reign with Christ on his throne here on earth during the millennial reign of Christ. That's the third time in three chapter Revelation that we've heard John or heard Jesus say, talk about us ruling and reigning with him. Hallelujah. And so to sum this up, if you're growing lukewarm in your walk with Christ, Jesus still stands at the door and he knocks. And he wants you to open the door and let him back in. Because our relationship with Jesus begins when we hear his voice and open the door. Many people will hear his voice, but they don't open the door. Because to open the door means to make him Lord of your life. That means... He gets to tell you how you how you take care of the checkbook. A lot of people don't like that. A lot of people that means when you make him Lord of your life, that means he gets to tell you who to marry. A lot of people don't like that, my friend. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. Don't give in to lukewarm Christianity. Open the door because he said, "Let he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit." Is saying to the churches, I believe we need an ear to hear what the Holy Spirit's saying. Can I have an amen? Can we give God praise for chapter 3 of Revelation? That's a good chapter. We can learn a lot from it right there. Now, Revelation chapter 4. I want to start this, quest- this chapter with a question. Have you ever imagined what God looks like? In this chapter, John gets to see God in a vision in all his glory sitting on his throne. What a sight to behold. Now, Bible scholars don't all agree on the details of the end times chronology, and and that's okay. Uh, I'm gonna help, I'm gonna try to help you understand some basics, and then you can read Revelation yourself and decide for yourself. And again, if you see it a different way than I do, that's fine. We'll agree to disagree because the way I see it is. Most of this, what we're going to go into now is future events, and really God only knows how it's all going to come to pass. But Jesus had John write it down so we could read it today, and I believe we can learn from it today. So let's begin here with Revelation 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Now, here in this verse, John is caught up to heaven. Now, the Latin word for caught up is raptus, which is where we get our English word rapture. Now, the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's just what it's the word that we use to explain the catching away of the church, the body of Christ. Now, many many scholars say this verse, verse 1 of chapter 4, where John is called up to heaven, represents the rapture of the church. Now, before we go any farther in Revelation 4, I want to stop right here and I want to talk to you a little bit about the rapture of the church and what our view is in the Assemblies of God. Now, there are five views of the rapture that are taught by different groups in the world. So I'm going to give these to you. You can write them down and that way you can see this. Uh, Again, I'm going to try to, I try to give you As many different views of Revelation as I can, but I want to try to keep us on track and focus. So, the five views of the rapture taught by different groups around the world. The first one is this. It's called the post-tribulation rapture. The post-tribulation rapture. The word post means after. So, those who teach this, they teach the church will go through the great tribulation and the rapture will be at the end Of the tribulation period. So that's the post-tribulation rapture. The second view is the mid-tribulation rapture. The mid-tribulation rapture. Of course, mid is short for middle. (laughs) And so those who believe this, they teach the rapture happens at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. In the middle of the tribulation before the antichrist turns evil. Because, and we'll get into this in a little bit more details, but when the Antichrist first comes to power, he's had, he, he signs a peace treaty with Israel. They love him. Everybody loves him. They all, everybody gives him their power. I mean, he, he's, he, he's, he's, he comes across as a people pleaser, a lot like politicians today who will say anything to get your vote. He's going to be a politician that is so polished, the whole world is going to listen to him. So that's the view of the mid-tribulation rapture. The third view is the pre Tribulation rapture. The pre-tribulation rapture. Pre means before tribulation. So that view teaches the church is raptured before the tribulation begins. So you got post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, pre-tribulation. The fourth view of the rapture is called the partial rapture. The partial rapture. Those who see this view, they teach that mature believers are raptured in the middle of the tribulation and immature believers have to go through the tribulation. So they believe that mature ones are raptured in the middle and the partly and the immature believers have to go through tribulation. The fifth view is called the multiple rapture view. Multiple rapture view. Now this one is a little confusing but I'll tell you right now, it's absolutely not biblical, all right? But I'll, I'll explain it to you. This is how it goes. This view teaches the church is divided into different groups. You have the bride. Then you have the friends of the groom. Then you have the guests. Then you have the others. And each group is raptured separately along the way. Now, again, this teaching is absolutely false because the Bible teaches that all believers will go up together. And I'm going to give you verses for that in just a moment. Now, the reason I share this with you is because if you meet somebody who believes in the multiple rapture theory, if you encounter someone who believes that way, you'll know what to say to them, all right? That's the reason why I'm giving you all five views. Now, in the past, I understand that this church at one time had a pastor that preached that Christians would go through the tribulation period. And he preached it so often and was so dogmatic about it, it ended up splitting this church. And he ended up leaving and starting his own church. Now, I want to say right here and now, I am not trying to split the church. All right? Y'all love me? Wave at me. I am not trying to split the church. I am simply giving you what five different views people look at. Now, what I'm going to do in this study, I'm going to preach what the Assemblies of God teaches. Because we're an Assembly of God church. Is that All right? Okay, I mean, and if you don't like, if you don't agree with the assembly of God teaching, that's okay. As long as you love Jesus, we're still going to heaven together. All right, Amen. You love me? I love you too. The assemblies of God teaches the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. So we're going to be looking at throughout the study the pre-tribulation rapture. That's the one we're going to look at. The one we're going to focus from. The Assemblies of God teaches that the rapture is imminent. I'm going to give you some scriptures right now. There's so many more. I'm going to give you one, two, three, four, five, six. Six different references with several scriptures in there. You can write them down. We'll have them on the screen here for you. Now, these are verses in the Bible that teach the pre-tribulation rapture. We just read one of them just a few minutes ago from Revelation 3, verse 10. Jesus said, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience... I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now remember, as I mentioned a while ago, Jesus said this. That was to the church of Philadelphia because they had kept his word and, and, and he said, I'm going to keep you from the hour of temptation. He was referring to the great tribulation period which later on is referenced in the book of Revelation. Here's another one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. What is the tribulation period? Well, one purpose of it is when the wrath of God is poured out for the sins of mankind. When you and I are children of God, we have been saved through Jesus and delivered from the wrath to come. Hallelujah. Why would Jesus save you from hell but then make you go through hell on earth in the tribulation period? Doesn't make any sense. Here's another scripture for you. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses fifteen through eighteen. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive remain, and the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now this verse right here proves that that multiple rapture theory is completely false because we see here from these verses the dead in Christ rise first then we which are alive remain also are called up with them all believers go together at the same time hallelujah and we meet Jesus in the air 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 9 for God hath not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ again God is not appointing us to wrath here's another verse Luke 21 Verses 34 through 36, Jesus said, take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares, for as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So here is Jesus saying, watch and, and take, care, take care because the, the rapture is going to take place and it shall come like a snare upon those who are left behind. Here's another verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So according to these verses... We believe the Bible teaches the church will be taken to heaven before the tribulation period begins. And there's many other verses. I just want to give you those. You can jot those down real quickly. So let's get back to Revelation chapter 4. Now I mentioned to you a while ago that there are some Bible scholars who believe... That chapter 4, verse 1, when Jesus says, John, come up here, and John goes up to heaven again. Now, this is not a literal rapture. John is not raptured to heaven. He is taken in a vision. He's given this vision of God, but there are some who believe that that verse, verse 1, kind of points to the timing of the rapture. But chapter 4, verse 1, it is interesting in this verse because it begins and ends with the same Greek word, and that is metato- metatauta. Look at the first phrase of verse 1. It says, after this. And look at the last word of it. It says, hereafter. Both those are the same Greek word, metatauta which means Jesus is getting ready to show John future events. After this and the hereafter. Hallelujah. From this chapter forward, we're going to deal with future events. Now, I gave you a simple outline last time of the book of Revelation. We found that. Uh, earlier on in in chapter 1, verse 19, that was like a simple, simple um, outline of Revelation. I'm going to give you a little more detailed outline of Revelation if you would like to write this down. It goes like this. I'm going to give you the chapter numbers first. If you want to write the chapter numbers down on the left-hand side of your paper, and then I'll go back and show you what each chapter with outline is for, okay? So I'm going to give you the chapter numbers first. Boom, boom, boom. Just make a list. And then I'll go back and show you what each chapter means, okay? A more detailed outline of Revelation. Chapters 4 and 5. Write that down. Chapters 4 and 5. Okay, then we're going to do chapters 6 through 18. And then chapter 19. And then chapter 20. And then chapters 21 and 22 together. Okay, this is the outline. All right, so you got the numbers down. Chapters 4 and 5. Chapters 6 through 18. Chapter 19. Chapter 20. And then chapters 21 and 22. Now, here's what each chapter talks about. Here's the outline. Chapters 4 and 5, we're going to talk about the church in heaven and what they see in heaven. Chapters 4 and 5. Chapters 6 through 18 is the tribulation period and the earth in judgment. Chapters 6 through 18, the tribulation period and the earth in judgment. Chapter 19 is Jesus' second coming. Chapter 19 is Jesus' second coming. Chapter 20 is the millennium, the millennium. And chapters 21 and 22 is the new heaven and the new earth, the new heaven and the new earth. That's your detailed outline of the book of Revelation. And we know that chapters 1 through 3 have already happened. That was to when Jesus appeared to John and gave him those seven letters, the seven churches. So now you have an outline of the entire book of Revelation. You can use that. You can refer to that whenever you read the Revelation on your own, okay? All right, now we'll be going through this, and, we'll go, and I'll go over that again for you as we get through the book. But let's go on with chapter 4. Look at verses 2 and 3. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Let me ask you something. How would you feel if you saw to get to see God like that? What would, you, what would go through your mind? Would you be excited? Would you be afraid? Would you be standing in awe? John said that he that sat on the throne was to look upon like a jasper, which is clear as crystal, and like a sardine stone, which is blood red. So when he saw God sitting on the throne, and when he saw Jesus sitting on the throne, it was like clear as crystal and blood red. I believe that represented the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah, the blood of the Lamb. And there was a rainbow like an emerald. Can you imagine a rainbow with all shades of green over the throne of God? My, my, my. What a picture that John saw. Now, I want to tell you, there is one word that is repeated more than any other in this chapter. It is the word throne. The word throne is repeated 14 times in this chapter alone, 46 times in the book of Revelation. And I want to tell you, I believe the reason why it's there that many times is because no matter what is happening in your life, he wants us to remember God is still on the throne. Hallelujah. No matter what you're facing, no matter what the doctor report says, God is still on the throne. This is why it doesn't matter what people say about you or what they do to you here on earth. All that matters is Jesus is on your side and he said he would never leave you nor forsake you but go with you to the end of the world. Hallelujah. Friend, you're just passing through this earth. You've got a better home waiting on you. Praise the Lamb of God. And so John looks and sees this. Look at verse 4. And round about the throne were 24 seats. And upon the seats I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now, who are these 24 elders? I I looked and did research, and and there's so many different theories about what they are. I'll, I'll I'll give you the top two, okay? Some say that they are angelic beings. But I have a problem with that theory because angels are never said to be given crowns. Believers are. So I don't really believe that theory, but that's just me personally. But again, who are the 24? Well, again, I, don't, I couldn't find a definitive thing, but others said that it is the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles together, and that's who makes up the 24 elders. I, that's just what I found. Maybe you can Google it and find something else, but I just wanted to throw that out there to you. But either way, either way, what matters is John looked and saw the throne, and he saw these 12, 24 elders sitting on 24 seats around the throne of God. Look at verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. In the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The first beast was like a lion. The second beast like a calf. The third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Are you getting this picture in your mind? John is seeing this. This is a picture of God on the throne. And he says, Lightning and thunder is coming from the throne, like a storm that's coming. That's judgment judgment from the throne. And he said there are four beasts there. Now, as I began to do research on those four beasts, I believe that they're probably either cherubim or seraphim angels because they match the description of the beasts, the angels that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10 in the book of Ezekiel and also what Isaiah saw in Isaiah Chapter 6, you can look those up later on, but you'll see the same description of what we just read here. And so I believe i don't believe they're figurative. I believe they're literal beings because Ezekiel saw them, Isaiah saw them, and now Jesus is showing John, and they're right there around the throne, he says. Now I want you to notice what they say. Notice that they do not cry, love, love, love is the Lord. They don't say that. But that's what we hear a lot of people on earth saying, don't we? We hear a lot of people saying, oh, God is love, God is love, but that's not what they say. Notice they do not say, just, just, just is the Lord, even though he is just, but they don't say that either. What is it that they say? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. If you don't remember anything else about the book of Revelation, remember this, God is holy. When you're looking through the tribulation period, remember, God is holy. When you look at the things that are happening down on earth, remember, God is holy. When you read about things happening in heaven, remember, God is holy. When you look at yourself in the mirror, remember, God is holy. And we sang about it tonight. We sang it. Melissa had no idea what it was going to say in the sermon. I thank you for letting the Lord lead you. We sang it like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We have the opportunity to join our voice with the angels tonight and these four beasts and elders saying holy, holy, holy. We need to understand the holiness of God. If you don't understand anything else by the book of Revelation, that right there sums the whole thing up. The seven letters, the churches, why did he send them? Because God is holy. And he wanted to see, wanted to show them that he knew what was going on in their lives. And he was giving them time to repent. And if they didn't repent, then he would have no choice but to judge them. Why? Because God is holy. God is holy. Look at verse 9. and Picture this in your mind. And when the beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Everybody worships God. The 24 elders fall down. The beasts fall down. The angels fall down. Everybody's worshiping God and they cast their crowns at his feet because he alone is worthy of it all. The word worship means to ascribe worth to. That's what worship is. It's, it, worship is not a, a song genre. I know that's what it is, what people think about it today. Praise and worship as the song genre. No, that's not worship. Worship is worship means to ascribe worth to. And I want to ask you something. How worthy is God? How much worth could you ascribe to God, to a holy God? How much is he worth to you? Well, we tell it, They tell us right here how much he's worth. He's worth all glory, all honor. All power. He created all things. Without him, nothing was made that is made. And they were made for his pleasure. And by his pleasure, hallelujah. My friend, that means you and I. You were created for his pleasure. You are God's workmanship. You want to know why you're here? God took pleasure in creating you. He created you for his pleasure. And because he's holy, he is worthy of all worship and all glory and all power. I wish somebody would give God a praise because he's worthy of more than what we usually give him. Oh, hallelujah. You see, one day we will all see God face to face. And on that day, you will face him either as your heavenly father or as your judge. And the decisions you make on earth will determine how you face God at the end of your life. Those who choose to love him and put him first in their lives will face him as their heavenly father. Those who choose to reject him will face him as their final judge. My friends, make sure you choose to make him the Lord of your life. Ask him to show you his plans for your life and then follow him with all your heart. As we mentioned tonight about the rapture, If the rapture took place tonight, would you go or would you be left behind? Because God is holy. And the letters we read of the churches tonight, one was losing its spiritual fire and life. And Jesus said, wake up, stand guard, it's time to finish what you started. The same message goes to us tonight. If we're losing our spiritual fire and losing our life, We may act like we're alive, but inside God can see right to our heart, and he knows if we're alive or if we're dead spiritually. If you're growing lukewarm in your walk with Christ, Jesus still stands at the door, and he knocks, and he says, if you'll open the door and let me in, I'll heal you of your lukewarmness. I'll heal you of your backsliding. And if you're struggling with people coming against you, hold on to Jesus and his word no matter what comes your way, because great will be your reward. Hallelujah. My friend, tonight we can learn some valuable lessons from Revelations 3 and 4. God is holy. And the only way we can even be justified in His sight is by the blood of Jesus. And so as I close this message tonight, we're going to close with a time of prayer. And I'm going to open this altar up tonight. And I believe that God would want us to allow him to just search our hearts and our minds and our lives and make sure that everything is right between us and him. If the rapture would take place tonight or or even if the rapture doesn't take place tonight but if something were to happen to us if we were to die on our way home tonight I hope it doesn't happen but you know we're none of us are promised tomorrow. We have no promise for tomorrow. Yesterday's gone. We can't change the past. All we have is right here, right now. And my friend, if you don't know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you're ready to go to heaven, ask Jesus to search your heart and your mind and forgive you of anything and everything that would hinder you from going in the rapture. Ask him to forgive you of anything and everything that would hinder you from seeing him and making heaven your home. Ask him to forgive you of becoming lukewarm and your relationship with Him. Ask God to relight that fire within you. Hallelujah.
0: This has been Strong Meat for Strong Believers. If this broadcast was a blessing to you, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at revivalfire29 at yahoo.com or call me at 964-5333 and visit Raven Assembly of God's website at ravenag.org and find out more information about our church. This is Pastor Doug Johnson reminding you to keep your head up. God is on your side. And join me next time for more Strong Meat for Strong Believers.